and welcome to Securing Sexuality, the podcast where we discuss the intersection of intimacy and information security. I'm Wolf Gorlick. He's a hacker. And I'm Stephanie Gorlick. She's a sex therapist. And today we're going to discuss what safe sex looks like in a digital age. And today we're talking about some of the classic sex machines. Uh, <laughs> there's an old story. Uh, if you if you're into country music, if you're into the Nashville sound, there's an old story about Waylon Jennings. And Waylon Jennings would play, he'd play his shows, and he'd hop in his car and he'd rush back as fast as he could to Nashville to his home to play his favorite pinball machine. So there we were. Yeah, it was about a year ago or so. There we were in Nashville. We're with some friends, and uh, <laughs> what better way to have like a couple's date uh, than to play some some friendly pinball, right? I mean, that's that's what you do. So fast forward, and this week we are in Seattle, and we go to the Seattle Pinball Museum. Uh, we thought we'd do a straightforward story about the history of pinball machines, because you guys know I love random technology like mailboxes and pinball machines. And, we, you know, obviously we're going to work in relationships in some way, but it turns out this is not so straightforward. Um, but we'll get into that in a minute. Yeah, it's, it's definitely not as straightforward as we thought. Like, show me a study of how the kids in the 1960s uh, used to date around playing ball machines. You know, show me that. Uh, 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 hello? Hello? So we, we did some Googling. We did some reading. And the first thing that jumped out at me was, like, everyone has their, their analogy for pinball, right? Everyone's got, like, their way of looking at it. Do you want to hear mine? Yeah, sure. Why not? <laughs> I think pinball is a lot like dating. Uh, you don't actually win, and you just play to keep playing as long as you can. And there's lots of lights and lots of sound and lots of excitement, but at the end of the day, you don't control much. And at the end of the day, you know, you maybe get one or two more balls, and that's it. You're done. It's good, no? It is good. And it's actually <laughs> funny you say that because I was reading an essay um, by this amazing writer, Jetta Ray, who is talking about how they connect pinball to uh, their identity as a queer person, to their, their experiences with dating. And they their words kind of mirror your, your analogy. They said, you know, there's no universal standard for what constitutes a pinball machine. There just isn't. The lower left of any pinball machine, there are rules, but these aren't rules in the sense that they tell you what you have to do. These are options for participating in a narrative. I love the way that they put that. Options for participating in a narrative. And, you know, if you want to do this to get this extra ball, you'll do these things. Here's what you hit. Here's the order you do it in. But every machine is different. There's no what is pinball. There's no unifying theory of pinball game design. Um, you listen to the machine and you anticipate the needs of the machine. And pinball is actually very sensual. There's a lot of nudging. There's a lot of moving around. There's a lot of working out a narrative and collaborating with the machine, says Jetta Ray. And all of that sounds so much like what you're talking about when it comes to relationships, right? There's no winning or losing at relationships. You have to figure out kind of the narrative of your partner and, and the story that you guys create together and respond to that. I like that a lot. Oh, yes, that's good. That's good. The partner side of it is is interesting, though, right? Because originally, it was kind of dangerous for women to be around pinball, is what I'm understanding. Originally, like if I was 
to you know, see you from across the room, the girl at the pinball machine. Um, that would that would tell me something about the kind of girl you are. It would tell you I was not the kind of girl that you would take home to meet your parents because <laughs> pinball machines, such as they were, the original, you know, bagatelle machines, were in bars and saloons and proper ladies, frankly, proper gentlemen, did not hang out in bars and saloons. And so pinball had a reputation as being deviant as being a form of gambling as being something that was not done by polite upstanding members of society uh, in fact pinball was banned from the 40s up until 1976 and actually the state of tennessee didn't let minors play pinball without an adult chaperone <laughs> until 2000 which blows my mind but there's this long sort of cultural history of pinball as a signal of sort of the outlaw or the bad guy or the loose woman, which is fascinating because that's not at all how we think about it today. Yeah, that's the first thing that surprised me, especially hanging out uh, at the pinball museum. It seems kind of wholesome. There's a lot of couples around. When we were in Nashville, um, that was that was a very nice uh, nice time, and there's lots of lots of couples, lots of people having a good time. And, you know, today, if I think of, if I see a pinball game in a, in a movie, it's, oh, look, that seems, that seems very wholesome. But when I go back and look at the history of pinball in, in uh, movies, it's right on par with what you're saying in terms of it being culturally, like, dangerous. Like, American Graffiti uh, has uh, a pinball machines in the beginning, right? And it shows, oh, these are, <coughs> these are shorthanded Edit, edit, edit. These are edgy people who are willing to, you know, risk anything just to have a few minutes of fun. They don't play by the rules. Uh, there's a, a movie called Bad Influence with uh, James Spader that starts off with pinballs uh, showing that uh, that the character is in the wrong neighborhood. Uh, lots of different uh, slices and dices. The Crow, the movie The Crow used pinball machines, although they ended up getting smashed, which was which is kind of sad. Um, right up to, I think, the the penultimate, in my mind, uh, was a movie in 1988, uh, which was The Accused, uh, which uh, actually showed a woman uh, getting sexually assaulted on a pinball machine. Uh, as if to say, you know, she asked for it because she was playing pinball. It's having a pinball machine in, in film and having a pinball machine in real life does not have the same resonance today as it did in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and in the early 80s. And, you know, as somebody that pays attention to how sexuality is portrayed and represented in pop culture, that to me is so fascinating because The Accused, when it came out, was a brutal movie. I mean, it was very highly regarded. Uh, the actors, I want to say there were some awards involved. It, it's a very famous film. And in 88, that pinball scene really was a signal to the audience that uh, the sexual assault survivor was in a place where she should not be. Right. And that the, the men that were around her were not trustworthy men. It was a social shorthand 
that I think anybody watching that movie in 2022 would not pick up on at all. If anything, I think sort of the intensity and the the awfulness of that scene would be recontextualized by how innocent and wholesome we think of pinball today. Now, the, the pinball machines in The Accused would not be sort of red flags for the characters. They would be um, a juxtaposition between wholesomeness and horror that would read very differently to us now. And that, to me, is, is a fascinating sort of statement on how technology, how symbology evolves over time and how context is so time specific. When I'm teaching about BDSM and kink, I often describe kink as anything that's, you know, non-normative for its place and time. And people often get a little bit confused about that time question, but I think pinball is a great exemplifier of that, that what was a clear red flag sign of um, outlaw status and degeneracy in 1988 would not be read at all the same way in 2022. Time and place is such an influencer of so many different things that, uh, that we think about, that we, we feel, the emotions we feel, the excitement, the titillation we might feel. Uh, I was reading this paper. Uh, Stephen Kahn is the author. It says from 1981 on the social context of pinball, the making of a setting and its etiquette. And there's a couple of things that jumped out at me. But to your point about uh, your definition of kink, the line in this paper uh, is as follows. This is Stephen Kahn again, 1981. Pinball proves that one person's revolution can lay the basis for another person's pastime. So we got those sexy, sexy machines, baby. <laughs> one person's revolution is another person's pastime. I, I hate to bring everything back to BDSM and kink, but I mean, it's it's what I do. It's, it's the water I swim in professionally. And there, um, there's this idea in, in, in psychology that BDSM is considered a form of serious leisure. Oh. And, and I like this idea that for some people, the way they explore sensation, the way they form their, their relationships is a revolutionary act, right? Like they're making a statement about who they are and the, the world and society they want to build by how they form their relationships. And for other people, it's just a good time, right? It's a form of recreation. And both options, both perspectives are valid. But recognizing that, that people have different perspectives on pinball, on sex, on relationships is, is a really key part of forming healthy relationships and moving through the world effectively. And that's the revolution, if I said revolution, which I meant to say was revulsion. Uh so there's also that that edge side, right? Which is sometimes if things seem a little bit risky, if there is a heightened uh, heightened level of stimulation, if you think you're in the bad neighborhood, right? That, that can that itself can color and add some excitement. I can imagine. Oh, for sure. The, the thrill of things in, in many contexts for a lot of people is a part of the appeal of any sexual act. 
whether it's making out in the back room of a bar and hoping you don't get caught, um, or whether it's something perhaps more intense than that. There is that, that visceral sensation of othering ourselves that can be very sexy at times. Yeah, so maybe we lost that. Maybe we lost that in the 80s <laughs> when pinball was suddenly legal. After 1976, uh, it was legal. Um, I, I find it fa very fascinating that like, the game of pinball uh, was illegal even before it was invented because flippers were added and everything in the 40s. And, and just the whole history of the legality of it is, is fascinating. But okay, so it becomes legal. Um, it becomes something that's more uh, integrated into our society. It becomes something that's more fun for a date night. I want to tease on the sensory side of things, though. When we watched that documentary, there was there was a lot of exploration of that, right? We watched a documentary on pinball, which was... Um, how would you define that? How would you describe that? Adorable? Adorable. It was it was definitely a clean cut, um, sanitized history of pinball. It was made with by a lot of industry folks to talk about the evolution of the, the machines themselves and less about the cultural history of pinball. Um, I'll throw a link to that in the show notes. There are other documentaries out there, but but it was cool to see how the people who make and manufacture the machines describe them. And one of the executives they interviewed was Richard Sharp. And I loved his statement. He said, the whole idea of pinball is sensory reward. And we have a lot of different video games now, right? Like for a long time, pinball was the game. There, This was predates Atari. This predates electricity. But the idea of pinball as a sensory reward was a really powerful statement for me, especially when we think about it in the context of society and interaction with other people. Pinball generally is not a game you play by yourself at home alone. Yeah, I, I, I love the sensory rewards. I love the, the bumpers. I love the spinning targets. I love the lights. Um, I, I love the games that uh, surprise you. My, my favorite, and I, this is just going to be sort of cliche for anyone who knows me because I like sci-fi, but one of my favorites is actually the, the old school Terminator game because you think you lost the ball and then suddenly for whatever reason like saves it and spins it around. You're like, oh, I'm back in the game. And you're back playing and uh, you know knocking things over and uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger is talking to you. Um, <laughs> that... Uh, that that is a sensory reward, uh, indeed. Question for you though. With with modern relationships, does that sensory reward still connect to to sexiness? Is there still a a through line there, or is it like, well, it used to be really edgy and that was exciting, and now it's more of this wholesome thing we do on a Saturday afternoon? I mean, how literally do you want me to answer that question? Because in in doing research for for this episode, I found a pinball players forum, and and somebody had asked the question about um, combining sex and pinball. And it was fascinating to me because 20% of the respondents said, oh, yeah, I've done that before. And 15% said that they do that with some frequency. 
So you got like 35% of the respondents that are like, yeah, sex and pinball go together. And even among those who weren't actively having sex on or around their pinball machines, another full third, uh, 32% of the respondents said they hadn't, but that it sounded like a good idea. (laughs) So, I mean, if we want to be really literal about it, sex and pinball, if you ask those who um, love the game enough to hang out on pinball forums, absolutely go hand in hand. All right. So (laughs) I don't even know where to go with that because you think about like, uh, strip poker, sure, but no one ever talks about strip pinball. I, I think probably one of the reasons why no one ever talks about strip pinball is almost every machine is labeled with for amusement only. And even at the uh, Seattle Pinball uh, Museum, there's a sign that says, you know, don't gamble, don't bet on the games. So, uh, you know, no, no strip pinball, perhaps. Well, I mean, the other complicating factor is what do you do if you get a free ball? Or if you get a multi-ball game, right? Are you now supposed to throw a shirt back on? Do you have to add three scarfs and a, and a mitten if you get a multi-ball? So, I mean, it becomes the math becomes a little bit more complicated when you're playing pinball for sure. <laughs> yeah, the the, uh, the sign reads, please do not place anything on the games. Thank you. Um, and I guess that includes adding clothes as well as removing clothes. I think it is interesting, the connection between pinball and gambling and other illicit activities. Uh, in, In the 40s and 50s, they genuinely thought that school kids and young people would spend all of their money on pinball they would they would um starve spending their lunch money on pinball um and during the great depression people could you know have five ten minutes of fun for a penny and so it was one of the few industries that survived the great depression because it was seen as a form of gambling i love this podcast called cocaine and rhinestones tyler mahan co is the son of david allen co and if you love like old school country like I do. It's fascinating. But he did an episode that touched ever so briefly on pinball. And he said that modern pinball was illegal before it existed. And again, I tie threads between this and sex and relationships. And I think about how many people that sentence would resonate with in terms of how they see themselves and their identities and how they move through the world. Like there are so many clients that I've worked with that would, that would feel like my identity was illegal before I even existed or before I even knew it was what it was. And, And so there's this, this like unifying thread of pinball as this thing that kind of exists outside of space and time that kind of doesn't fit in no matter when it is. If, it's deviant gambling hedonism in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, and it's saccharine, sweet, wholesome in the 2000s, 2020s. There's never a time when pinball is just like kind of cool. And I, I know a lot of people that feel like that too. And I wonder if that's part of the appeal of pinball is that it is the quintessential bonding activity for outsiders. Huh.
Yeah, but who doesn't like to be outsiders, right? It's interesting you say, like, pinball was never cool. It's now it's second sweet before it was edgy. But isn't there something to being a little bit of an outsider? Isn't there something about being an outsider that makes a community? I remember when hacking was, was early on and you had to be like, hacking is not a crime and we were trying to explain what we we're doing. And in that moment in time, that being an outsider kind of brought people together, at least within that community. I mean, that's what we saw in the vintage gaming world where, you know, the gangsters, the motorcycle gangs, the gamblers, the social, I don't want to say deviants in a negative way, but, you know, the, the, the folks with loose morals, they found their outsider status together around pinball. But the, the essential nature of, you know, is it cool to be outside i mean the in-group will always say we're hackers nobody understands us and we're cool because we're iconoclasts in the same way that the motorcycle gang will say we're bikers and nobody understands us and we're cool because we're iconoclasts but when i say you know the outsider when i say that pinball is never cool the people that gather around pinball form their own communities the people that gather around these kinds of games or these gaming spaces form their own relationships and sure within the context of those communities and relationships yeah obviously people find each other cool but the broader community society as a whole has across time tended to point at the people who gather around pinball in whatever context that might take across time and look at them as outside the norm, as not cool. Huh. One of the things I think is interesting is in that shift from being dangerous to being saccharine sweet, in that shift from where we were uh, in 1981 to where we are today in 2022, uh, in that shift, there's also been you know a rise in multiple different types of people who like to game right there's uh back to that paper i was mentioning in the 1981 uh study it was like oh yeah there's almost no women i think it was one in every 10 people was uh was a woman playing pinball and yet uh some of the things i was coming across when i was doing my research was saying that in a in a way pinball has created a, a safer space for women gamers. Why? Because uh, there's there's no comment section. There's no chat. There's no internet connection. Uh, there is uh, no no way that some random stranger is, is going to start accosting you. At least if you see the random stranger, you can see he's coming up to you, right? There's, there's more time and there's less people around. And that kind of intrigued me because in the early days, one of the things around the internet we'd say is, well, being online is safer. Why? Because you're at home and they don't know who you are. And, uh, you know, you could you could be anybody. Um, and there's a distance there. Of course, when everyone becomes online and that distance becomes uh, something that anyone can traverse, what constitutes being a safe space also tends to flip. So I really thought it was intriguing that it started off as this uh dangerous space and now cannot be seen as being sort of like a safe space 
And that's a great example of that insider outsider sort of tension that, that I was talking about a minute earlier. You know, when we have this community of 50s biker outlaws gathered in the like Nashville saloon around the pinball machines, that's not going to be a welcoming space for women. <laughs> And if we fast forward to the 70s and the early 80s and the high day, like the, the, the heydays of the, the video game arcade, those were also seen as really heavily male-dominated areas. And the insiders, the male players, the bikers, the, the teenage boys hanging out at the arcade were not necessarily welcoming and inclusive of women. But then we look at modern video gaming like you were just mentioning with you know, there's no comment section, there's no chat, there's no live stream. And we think about things like Gamergate, and we think about the ways in which women have been not just verbally assaulted, but physically and emotionally attacked, swatted even, oh, yeah. because of video games. And all of a sudden, this idea of this pleasurable sensory experience that happens in a a dating environment like the pinball arcades we went to in Nashville in a museum setting, like in Seattle, all of a sudden there are places where people who might otherwise feel vulnerable in gaming can go and feel safe and feel included. And all of a sudden who's an insider and who's an outsider and where those groups gather have flipped. And it is fascinating to watch play out. It is. It absolutely is. And, and I think, too, it reflects well, some of the other conversations we've had in this, this podcast, right? Um, trying to understand where is the danger, what is the threat model, how do we respond to that is 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 challenging, is ever-changing as we've got different contexts, different spaces, and different technologies. So it's curious to me, one of the things that I told you when we were moving through the generations of pinball, and it turns out, seems like you're kind of a, a 90s, early aughts pinball aficionado, and in my sweet spot's the mid-80s when we, when we went through I think that's what we found out, yeah. What I kept coming back to as a sex therapist is how we have these fundamental things, right? We have usually two buttons a box with glass on top of it, two flippers, and a ball. There's variation, sure. Sometimes there's more or less of one or the other. But within just those sort of key basic tools, there's this infinite variety of gameplay, an infinite variety of targets and moving pieces and ramps and holes and all sorts of things. And it made me think a lot about my clients because I get so many inquiries from people who want to come to therapy because they effectively want to be better lovers. They want um, the Konami code to their partner's body, right? If you just be like up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right, she'll orgasm and you're a phenomenal lover and everybody's happy. But pinball kind of emphasizes for me how that's not the case because... Most bodies have a similar variety of parts, right? They they don't they have their version of flippers and buttons and and balls and what have you. But every single person that you connect with on a physical level has their own goals, their own targets, their own ways to achieve the flashing lights and bells and whistles and the things that aren't going to work for them. And so, like for me. It, 
might be a little bit trite, but I loved pinball as a metaphor for sexuality. And this idea that you can't just tell somebody, oh yeah, in order to play pinball, you know, you you pull back the shaft and release the ball and then you push the buttons and then you're playing pinball. Just push the buttons and hit the ball. It's not an adequate explanation for pinball. And just touch him there and stroke her there. And if you do this three times, magic will happen. It's not an effective explanation for sex. That You have to approach each partner in the same way you approach each pinball machine. And you have to not just understand the mechanics of the playing field, but also the specific goals and objectives for each individual encounter. And as somebody that loves the sensory experience of pinball, and as somebody who teaches a lot about the sensory experience of sex and intimacy, that really hit me really hard. And I loved the idea of the pinball games as you and I moved from game to game to game and these slight little variations of these differences in rules or differences in ramp placement and how that could be a takeaway for how we approach touching and connecting to our partners as well. So as we move into takeaways, that would be that would be one of yours, right? There's no recipe, no script. Yeah, just because your partner now has the same buttons and flippers as the last three partners you were with doesn't mean you can play the game the same way with them. You have to learn the landscape for each individual relationship and taking the time to do that, taking the time to figure out what makes this person light up as opposed to the last one or the next one is really key, not only to being a good lover, but also being a good partner. Ah, I like that. That's very sweet. <laughs> from, from a security perspective, my takeaway would be the threats of responding to change. You need to be careful not to get wrapped up in the stereotypes because, you know, at one point in time, oh man, these machines are, are really scary. Look at what we've seen in the movies. And realistically, they're they're just fine. I, I, I strongly suspect that a lot of this was, was overblown as things are often overblown in movies. So the, the threats need to be based on reality need to be based on what's personally happening for you uh, and they need to be reassessed over time because what is dangerous today is wholesome tomorrow and um, from an attack surface perspective in other words like what is likely to happen in this scenario and how many different ways could something bad happen curiously being in person is now much safer <laughs> than being online in many ways at least psychologically at least psychologically uh, again, no no chat, no comments, no trolls. So being aware of the fact that there is a, a stereotype, a persona, uh, a, a, a storyline, which in reality probably isn't reflective of what's really going to happen, is, is point A when you're doing your threat models, your personal threat models for your, your security. Uh, and, and point B is looking at... Uh, what differences in different places, different spaces, online and in person mean to, to you personally is really the key to securing sexuality, either securing your game of pinball or securing your date night. 
And what it means to you personally is so important, right? We talked a lot about how the perception of pinball as um, a community, as an activity, as a risk factor has evolved over time. And I think it's important that we be mindful of the fact that time and space contextualize everything. And we need to not judge people for what they enjoy, for what they participate in. If somebody likes pinball, that doesn't give anybody the right to um, reenact the accused. If somebody likes sex, that doesn't give somebody the right to be mistreated. We want to let people have space to like what they like without fear or judgment. And, and to recognize that it doesn't need to be your thing. It's totally cool if you are not a pinball person. But the pinball people of the world have every right to a safe place to explore whatever it is that they enjoy about that sensory experience. Absolutely. And on that note, I think we're we're at an end of this game. Game over. <laughs> we're, we may have to go find a couple more quarters, but thank you so much for tuning in to Securing Sexuality, your source of information you need to protect yourself and your relationships. From the bedroom to the cloud, we are here to help you navigate safe sex in a digital age. Be sure to check out our website, Securing Sexuality, for links to more information about all of the pinball topics we've discussed here today. And, of course, information about our upcoming 2023 live conference. And join us again for more conversations about the intersection of sexuality and technology. Have a great week.